Uh, once again, I want to reiterate that this podcast is not intended to be an extremely elaborate or detailed account of any of the events that I cover over the course of the podcast. All it is is supposed to be a crash course in all of the events that took place that I cover. So, if you want to learn more about anything that I cover on this podcast, I almost want to say visit your local library, but I'm not going to say that. But feel free to do your own research. I always encourage that. So, with that being said, enjoy the show. Welcome again to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. And the stuff that happened that we're going to be talking today about has to do with 10 days that changed the course of world history. And these 10 days took place in the state of Delaware in the United States of America. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So today, uh, let's dive right into it. We're talking about 10 days that changed world history. And in these days, we will experience the first and second battles of Trenton uh, when George Washington led his force across the Delaware River to surprise attack a Hessian force, as well as the subsequent Battle of Princeton. Now, many could argue that these are American events and are not timeline altering on an international scale. I've become pretty accustomed to the idea of... People who are not American are tired of hearing Americans talking about how their country is the best. And to be honest, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on. Now, if I were to pick a hill to die on, it would probably be the notion that every historical event is connected to another in some way. That is a hill that I'd be willing to die on, and no one can sway me from that ideology. And that may be the idea that people who don't use their blinker shouldn't be allowed to own a driver's license. But that's an argument for another podcast. These events fit into a larger historical setting because they were instrumental in the independence of the 13 colonies from the British Empire, leading to the creation of the United States of America, which is, current, uh, which is a current military, economic, and social superpower in the world. A leading member of the G7 and G10, the International Trade Union, Trade Union, Trade Union Confederation, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, and a whole slew of other organizations. These 10 days decided the fate of that nation, which was barely in its infancy. So background, the American Revolutionary War began properly on April 19th, 1774, with the famous battles of Lexington and Concord. Some people say the, the, the war didn't start until 1775, but this was the first armed, armed rebellion against the British Empire, and therefore I believe this was the beginning of the revolt and the revolution as a whole. The revolution had been brewing for a long time, but this was the first time that uh, at Lexington and Concord on April 19th, 1774, that the colonists decided they had had enough. They took up their arms and they started fighting with the British. This was preceded by the Boston Massacre when a group of British troops fired upon a gathering of unruly colonists hurling bricks and punches at the soldiers, followed by the Boston Tea Party when Boston Harbor was turned into a massive cup of tea as colonists dumped dozens of boxes of tea into the ocean in protest of a new tea tax enforced by the British imperial government. And by December of 1776, five months after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and two years into this conflict, the war had been building in intensity for those two years. Americans had scored several small victories through the through the years, such as at Sullivan's Island, Harlem Heights, the repulse uh, of the British Siege of Boston, and some historians even include the British victory at Bunker Hill as a point for the revolutionary forces. But with each of these small victories came a score of setbacks. 
the United States Army could hardly be considered a cohesive fighting force in the first few years of the conflict. And in the months preceding the bitter winter of 1776, the British had brought the American Revolutionary Army to the brink of collapse. It could hardly even be considered an army at the time. After, de after the defeat in Quebec a year before, the loss of New York City to the British three months earlier, and the British captures of Fort Washington and Fort Lee only weeks earlier, taking over 3,000 Patriot fighters with them, one of the most devastating blows to the Continental Army during the course of the war, this string of defeats had led to a general retreat through New Jersey to escape the British onslaught. Men had begun deserting the army at an exponentially growing rate. Washington even began privately expressing doubt, writing a letter to his cousin, quote, I think the game is pretty near up. The situation had reached a breaking point, and Washington was fully aware of the dire circumstances that his army had been placed under. These factors eventually led to the situation we find the Continental Army and only 2,400 fighters strong at the time, while under the leadership of George Washington in December of 1776, camped on the west side of the Delaware River, approximately six miles north of the town of Trenton, which consisted of about 100 houses and a handful of streets. At the time, a garrison of 1,400 Hessian mercenaries fighting for the British crown were stationed in Trenton, and George Washington attempted to gauge the tactics of the Hessian soldiers by sending a spy named John Honeyman, who had served under the British crown in the Seven Years' War, into the ranks of the Hessians. So Hessian soldiers were native to Hesse Castle. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a small province in Germany, part of what was then the Holy Roman Empire. The British crown had hired groups of elite fighters to aid them in the war against the revolutionary forces, and Hessian soldiers fit the bill. So John Honeyman posed as a loyalist and a butcher. Loyalists were people who were living in the United States at the time, uh, or the 13 colonies, rather, at the time, and uh, they liked the British crown. They wanted to stay loyal to the British crown. They had no intentions of joining the revolution to become their own country. So John Honeyman posed as one of these. He also posed as a butcher and spread misinformation among the garrison that the Continental Army was far too discouraged and weak to launch any major attacks, which was instrumental in the success of the Battle of Trenton. Because Washington began conducting raids on Hessian patrols in the week preceding the central attack. But because of John's misinformation, the Hessians were ill-prepared for what was about to happen. Deserters from the Continental Army and local loyalists to the crown advised the Hessian commander, Johann Rahl, to fortify the small town against an imminent attack. Advice that the commander shrugged off as nonsense, thanks to John Honeyman's skillful deception. So we go back to the rebel camp now. Washington's plan was threefold. One, a diversionary attack would be launched at the town of Bordentown, New Jersey, to keep British reinforcements from arriving in Trenton. This was about eight miles south of the city of Trenton. Two, a small detachment would take control of a bridge over a nearby creek, forbidding any Hessians from retreating from the city. Three, the main force would cross the Delaware River just before dawn, dividing into two groups, one attacking from the north, and one from the south as a pincer movement that would crush the defenders as they attempt to wake up. Only days before the assault, a contingent of troops retreating from the defeat at Fort Ticonderoga, uh, Ticonderoga, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, it was a fort, obviously, uh, but, but, a, but a, a contingent of troops retreating from a, a defeat at this fort arrived in Trenton, uh, reinvigorating the fighting force as they prepared for battle. 
these were some reinforcements they could also use in the attack. On Christmas Day, after sunset, the Continental Army began boarding boats to cross the nearly frozen river. Remember, we are in Delaware in December. It is cold. It is humid. If you've ever been to the Midwest or the Northeast during a bitter winter, the cold mixed with the high humidity cuts through any winter coat. You can't win. And these revolutionaries had already been camping in this cold for weeks. They were cold, they were angry, and they were ready for a shift. This crossing is where we get the famous painting of George Washington crossing the Delaware, created by German-American painter Emanuel Lutzi. Unfortunately, this painting is certifiably unrealistic, with so many people packed into a single boat, Washington standing upright with one foot on the ledge of the boat, a sizable American flag being balanced in the center of the craft. It's just not believable. But the drama created in the painting has gone down in history in remembering one of the great turning moments of the Revolutionary War in America. So as these crossings began, they were suddenly plagued by a blinding blizzard that lasted most of the night. This blizzard delayed the crossings significantly and brought the already beleaguered force to almost a standstill, not reaching the opposing shore until three in the morning. At four in the morning, with most of the soldiers landed, the army began marching toward Trenton. Many of these soldiers did not have boots they, or they had been worn through in the long winter. So they had tied rags around their feet, and the frozen soles of their feet began to crack and bleed in the snow, painting the frozen water red. In the blizzard, the soldiers became soaked and even colder, and at least two men died on the march from the river landing to the town of Trenton. Through the night, Washington rode up and down the line on his horse, encouraging his men onward. As the first inklings of sunlight reached through the trees, Washington's men approached the town of Trenton. The army split into two respective groups and surrounded the town. The general received word that the snow had begun to wet the gunpowder and many of the muskets. His response? Send word to General Sullivan, commanding the other attack group, quote, I am resolved to take Trenton. Use the bayonet. At 8 a.m., Washington's detachment led an attack on a shop a mile northwest of Trenton, which the Hessians were using as an outpost. Shortly after this attack began, Washington ordered a small group to attack another outpost nearby, which led the Hessians to realize this is not a regular raiding party. This is an attack of larger proportions. And as such, they began an organized retreat back into town. Once back in the town, other Hessian soldiers had begun to rise from their slumbers and join the fight. This stalled Washington advance as fire began to be exchanged on a larger scale, but only for several moments. Hessian soldiers began to retreat en masse, seeing as they'd been surrounded, and this time it was not organized. They began to run, some even attempting to swim across a nearby river. And to add insult to injury, by this point, American artillery had arrived on the battlefield, firing upon the Hessians and devastating their positions. With the fire of the cannons, the last Hessians who had stayed asleep on the outskirts of the town were now preparing to join the fight. But by the time they entered the battle, the revolutionary forces had already taken the central point of the town. The Hessians attempted to push back, but it was hopeless. In a battle fought among picket fences and skinny roads, the Hessian soldiers trained in classical combat form were no match for the revolutionary soldiers prepared for urban combat in their homeland. 
organized Hessian resistance was crushed in minutes. In a last-ditch effort, the Hessian general, who had ignored the warnings of an imminent attack, Johann Rahl, rallied his soldiers to march into town once more, but once inside, they were met with American fire coming from three different sides. American militiamen took shelter in nearby houses, and some local residents took up hunting rifles and joined the fight. Commander Rahl was mortally wounded and captured. The Hessians routed, fleeing into a nearby orchard with the Americans on their tail, inspired by the victory. The Continental Army moved quickly and surrounded the fleeing Hessians, who surrendered. The casualties of the Hessian force mounted to 22 killed, 83 wounded, and 896 captured. Continental losses were minimal, with the only deaths being those who had perished on the march to Trenton, and five wounded. Among these wounded was James Monroe, the future fifth president of the United States of America. It was a small battle in terms of numbers, but the victory would reverberate through the 13 colonies. A popular rumor is that the Hessians had partied pretty hard on Christmas Day and that their defeat was a product of the force being drunk or hungover. But according to eyewitness accounts, this was not true. Military historian Edward Langell writes, The Germans were dazed and tired, but there is no truth to the legend claiming they were drunk. A Continental soldier writes, the Hessians fought valiantly and had courage and focus, but were soundly defeated. So why was this battle so monumental? The Battle of Long Island, several years later, is hardly remembered in the public education system of the United States, yet casualties numbered in the thousands. The Battle of Trenton amounted to less than 50 lives lost, yet it is, it's almost a patriotic legend of the United States. Well, at the time, the Continental Congress was nearly ready to give in to the British. They had little faith in the colonial militias, in their going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British regulars and walking away victorious, and so they were looking into different options. But the Battle of Trenton was not only proof that a Continental force could beat a regiment of regulars, but also that they could beat a group of elite mercenaries from Europe. The Congress rallied around the victory and began levying money to Washington's army. Washington further solidified his gains with victories at the battles of Assunpink Creek, which is also known as the Second Battle of Trenton, and uh, at that, Washington bested a force of 5,000 British regulars. And he followed that with the victory at the Battle of Princeton, as he decimated a British force while sustaining a fraction of the casualties he inflicted on the British, both within 10 days of the Battle of Trenton. After months of defeat at the hands of Europeans, Washington had effectively routed the British army and rallied the American people to the Patriot cause. And with these victories, he established his place in the Hall of American Forefathers, and his patriotic acts would go down in history. Among these, during the Battle of Princeton, this is one of my favorites, Washington famously inspired his fleeing army by riding through them to the front line of battle. Eyewitness accounts state that Washington was successful in bringing his men back into the fight, where they took to the field once, once again, and Washington ordered for them to fire as he was in the center of the battlefield, directly between the Patriot forces and the British regulars. If, you, if you're familiar with how conflict worked, uh, 
in the time of the Revolutionary War, in the American Revolution at least, armies would go literally toe-to-toe. And that's where that's where this saying came from, going toe-to-toe with someone, because armies would line up across from each other and fire muskets at one another uh, en masse, trying to get the other army to break. Whoever broke first lost the battle, almost always. So as Washington rode through the field, sword in hand, the British line opened fire and the Patriot militiamen followed suit, shrouding the entire battlefield in smoke. As many of the men expected this to be the end of their fearless leader, Washington rode out of the smoke, sword still in hand, still rallying his men. This inspired the Patriot forces so much that they rushed the British forces and the battle was over. America, at the time of this recording, is very divided. Many people enjoy poking fun at the fathers of our country, bringing dirty deeds they committed to light. Now, I'm not going to comment on this sort of discourse, but what I do want to comment on is that the American Revolution was one of the most heroic struggles in modern history. Washington rode directly into the field of battle with the sole purpose of inspiring his men, and the risk on his own life led to victory in the battle. Washington's command led to a turning point of the Revolutionary War, and even though the war would rage for another six years, it could have ended much sooner, were it not for the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Both fought over a ten-day period that changed the course of history forever. And I'm not talking just American history, I'm talking the history of the world, because as I said before, American is a major player in so many of the world's dealings today. And were it not for the battles of Trenton, Princeton, this country maybe would not be what it is today. And I do think it's extremely important to remember that even if you don't like America today, you need to respect the struggle that the Patriots went through in achieving independence. I do think that deserves to be remembered. And with that, thank you for tuning in to Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. This was a this was a fun one, but unfortunately, well, also fortunately, my workplace has increased my hours pretty significantly in the last few days, and that's why I was unable to get an episode out earlier this week. I've been trying to release two episodes a week, but I'm probably going to have to take it back to one episode a week to keep the quality up because... Uh, I'm back to work, even though my state is still pretty quarantined, um, and it looks like we're heading for a statewide lockdown pretty soon. I am part of an essential workplace. I deliver pharmaceuticals, and uh, a lot of people are choosing to get the pharmaceuticals delivered rather than going into the pharmacy because of the coronavirus that's waging war on humanity at the moment. So I am probably going to be working a lot more, and as such, I'm going to be going back to releasing just one episode a week. But this is still episode, I believe, five of the uh, Quarantine Files, and I'm going, to con- I'm going to keep calling them the Quarantine Files until quarantine is up, just because it's fun to remember. And as I look back on this podcast, it will be fun to see how that all played out. So thank you for tuning in and learning about the Battle of Trenton, the Battle of Princeton. Um, and I hope you learned something from this that maybe you didn't know before. The Battle of Trenton is pretty famous in American history, but maybe you weren't as familiar with it as you would like to be. So thanks for tuning in. If that's the case, tune in next week. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help us out and get people more involved with the conversation about how history all fits together, which is what I love to talk about. So 
This is Tanner talking about stuff that happened, and I'm signing off until next week. Enjoy the week in quarantine, if you can. <laughs>